Reality provides us with facts so romantic that imagination itself could add nothing to them. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. Nice. Matt, who else could say such a thing but Jules Verne? Oh, I like a bit of Jules Verne. Do you? I think we've used him before at the beginning. I can't remember. Pretty good, isn't it? But he's, he's, he's wicked. Matt, you want to start the show off with... A correction. ...something mm. that I know puts you into a cold sweat. It's a correction. Why is it it's, it's never something that you've said, but something I've said needs correcting? It's really annoying. Well, Matt, are you are you sensing the theme that I'm just, <laughs> I'm just more on the ball? Yeah, I know, it's really annoying. So, uh, last week... Um, I said that the moon could be perturbed by various things, including comets. Now, the worst thing about that is I didn't put it in the show notes. I just sort of said it on the fly. And then yeah. and I didn't pick it up when I was editing. In every way, it's wrong. Oh. Jamie, it's wrong. Of course it's wrong. Well, you know what, Matt? It takes a big man to admit they're wrong. Or, or, or at least be caught yeah. out. <laughs> <laughs> they're 400 million times smaller than the moon, so they're not really going to have any kind of sort of effect on it. That's Halley's Comet is 400 million times smaller than the moon. So uh, the moon, as yeah. we discussed on a previous podcast, is actually massive, literally massive. It's big, isn't it? But it was Dr. David Whitehouse, who uh, people remember because hmm. he's done quite a lot of work on TV and on radio yes. and written loads of really cool books. So I was really, uh, in some ways, I was really chuffed that Dr. David Whitehouse is actually listening to our podcast, which is pretty cool. Well, it's a form of flattery. So there we go. Cheers, cheers, Doctor. Yeah, thank you, Dr. David, for uh, pointing that out. And um, I dug a hole slightly more because I said, what about a primordial black hole? He said, no, they're even smaller. <laughs> so, so, <laughs> so then I went for the wild and wacky rogue planet. Yeah. Uh, and he did accept that that would. So that was good. I eventually got there. Oh, one out of three. Yeah. So, of course, the one thing that's in the news quite a lot at the moment, Jamie, is the Mars close approach. It is, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, so if you look out your window at night now, Mars does look goddamn bright. Uh, 35.8 million miles yeah, from Earth. Which is, which is a, at its closest point. Yeah, which is apparently very, very this close. This morning. Which is very, very close. And it won't be that close again. Until 2287. Matt, will I still be alive then? You might be, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You reckon? I'll have been uploaded at that point. <laughs> whereas, you'll be kept in the you'll keep be kept in the clouds. Yeah, I'll be you? just a, I'll be a cloud entity. Whereas I think you'll still be one of these kind of. I might check this out, Matt. I might download you into my mind. Yeah, well, we will we'll sort of combine in the future. We? Be bizarre, but it will be like a weird form of um, what was that film, Matt, with uh, with Patrick Swayze and what Demi? ghost? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> wasn't expecting that. <laughs> uh, but it's really weird i don't know as you as i said it i thought this is weird don't say it and then it came out yeah okay um i was thinking more that we wouldn't have to release the podcast it would sort of just flow from within us into the minds of all our listeners as we became all in the cloud god imagine how annoying that would be anyway yeah. it's a good time to see mars although it's not that good because it's a little bit dusty so you don't see that many features well matt even I if you've got a really powerful telescope it's one of those things actually that's a little bit annoying it's a bit like the super moon oh. really yeah, Mars doesn't look any different now than it will the next time it's in opposition in a couple of years' time. 
So don't worry about the 250 years. We, it was too cloudy. You know, we'd had all this good weather. The one day I wanted it to be clear... Was the lunar eclipse. Bloody lightning storm. Don't talk yeah. to me about that. I drove all the way to South Wales in the boiling heat only to only for the campsite to be completely wrecked by wind and had to drive all the way back the next day after freezing oh. to death oh. in the night. <laughs> uh, yeah. Ouch. So that, that was pretty grim. So, yes, thanks, weather. That's not good. Hey, Matt, I've got a yeah. question for you. The iron-rich rust-coloured dust that we know Mars gets its colour from, mm-hmm. what is that? Well, unbelievably, all of that dust, all of the sort of red-coloured dust, comes from one enormous object, the Medusae fossae, which is this enormous crumbling piece of uh, debris at the equator of Mars, and all of the dust comes from that. Really? Yeah. Wow. It's a 1,000 kilometres roughly, the, 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 the size of this object. All this dust all comes from the same place. It's a chemical match across the entire Martian surface. Blimey. Isn't that interesting? It really is. You'd need a big hoover, wouldn't you, Matt, to get yeah. rid of that? It's one messy rock, that. It is. So who's, uh, who's the astronaut of the week? Who's, who's got a birthday today? Well, it's GSS, isn't it? GS squared. August the 3rd. <laughs> 19, yep. 1935. Yeah. It's Georgie... Stefanovich Shonin. Did I pronounce that right, Matt? Oh, well, yeah, I think so. George Stepanovich Shonin. Born in Ravenki. Part of Ukraine. Now nowadays. Ukraine, yes, yeah. absolutely. Mm-hmm. Formerly Oblast. Mm-hmm. Um, so he flew on the Soyuz 6 space mission. Uh, sorry, let me put my teeth in. Mm. He flew on the Soyuz 6 space mission. Mm-hmm. The crew of Georgie Shonin and Valery Kubasov. We're meant to take high-quality movie photography of the Soyuz 7 and Soyuz 8 docking, but the rendezvous systems on all three spacecraft failed, Matt. Yeah, so 6, 7 and 8 were all up in space at the same time. And, yeah, so it was their job to film film that rendezvous happening, which would have been an amazing achievement at the time. Shown as part of the original group of cosmonauts. God, amazing, selected in 1960, it? yeah. But my favourite bit of Soyuz 6 is that Kubasov, his um, crew member, uh, they were they were out testing lots of different types of welding in space to make sure it all welding kind of worked. But uh, he was welding and, and almost managed to weld through the hull of the ship. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> which would which obviously would have been a bit of a disaster. Yeah, that might have brought things to a standstill. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah, so so happy birthday, astronaut happy birthday. of the week. George is the barn of it shonen. And of course, uh, he died back in 1997. Matt, if you were living in the Ukraine, mm-hmm. what would be a typical birthday cake, do you think? I think it would be a vodka and cream cake. It's very racist of you, Matt. It'd be some form of sponge. You reckon? Maybe coloured with beetroot. Oh, I love a beetroot cake. Black vel- uh, velvet cake. Red velvet cake. Red velvet yeah, cake. Big time. Yeah, there we go. Let's go with red velvet cake. Well, if you know, answer's on a postcard. In the shape of a Soyuz capsule. Love that. I'm getting hungry. Yeah, mate. Matt, what's happening in the news? In the news, well, just come out, just come out, is that uh, the Boeing Starliner, the the uh, capsule that's supposed to be taking uh, American astronauts and, and the, everyone else up to the International Space Station, has been definitely delayed. So oh. we were supposed to see it. We were supposed to see it uh, this month in action. Right. But it doesn't look like it's going to be ready until the end of the year for it to fly unmanned and then hopefully crewed 
in mid-2019. So we're still miles <sighs> away from hearing this. And, of course, today, if we're listening on Friday, is the day that we're supposed to get an announcement of who's, which astronauts are actually flying these things. I just, so that's pretty exciting. I just wish they'd hurry up, Matt. Yep. Uh, and, and so now we have to we'll sit here waiting whether SpaceX are going to actually beat Boeing to the launch pad. But... If, if I'm reading uh, the tweets that uh, Eric Berger's been sending out quite a lot, mm. it's, according to his sources, even these new schedules are wildly optimistic. Mm. Yeah, we, we, we tend to not get our hopes up when we hear about any dates, do we? No, and, and to add to that, add to the Americans' woes, the Russian embassy couldn't help but rub it in because recently um, the Atlas V has ordered, uh, well, ULA have ordered... Uh, six more RD-180 rocket engines, which, of course, will be the engine that takes the Blooming Starliner up into orbit. Um, they've, they've had to order six more from the Russians. So the Russian embassy has put Russian rocket engines to continue launching Americans into space. <laughs> that's their little tweet. So utter rubbing it mm, in. Yeah, that's uh, salt in the wound, isn't it? Sh- surely is. Yeah, so that's been all, it's, it's all a, bit of a bit of a mess. Hey, Matt, do you know what my favourite new feature on the interplanetary podcast is uh, no tell me space word of the week space word of the week now what have we got this 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 week well, literally one that i've been trying to wrap my head around for a long time i think it's quite simple hmm. but it's also quite confusing at the same time and the space word of the week is it's actually it's a phrase really but it's it's a term specific impulse Ooh. Okay. I'm bound to get loads of people saying I've got it wrong. Doctor, doctor, are you listening? <laughs> so I'm bracing myself, but I think, it's, I think it's brave of us to have a little attempt at this. Let's attempt it. Yeah, so let's attempt it. So what is specific impulse? It's a measure of efficiency for rocket engines, right? Right, exactly right. If we were to have an analogy, I guess it's like the miles per gallon. Got it. Got it. So, like, your car gets an MPG rating. So, and, of course, wh- there's actually... This, this analogy we can probably stretch a little bit further. I mean, it's actually nothing like that. Okay. But it basically, it's the amount of thrust produced by each pound of propellant burned in a unit of time. So, uh, yeah, you get a pound of thrust for a pound of propellant for how long? Normally, specific impulse is measured in seconds. Now... So it's yeah, it's how how many seconds you can get the same amount of thrust for the amount of propellant that mm. you're using. That sounds a little bit confusing. It gets a little bit more confusing because the units don't seem to necessarily be seconds. They can be also meters per second, uh, a sort of speed. When the specific impulse is is a sort of a speed, it's actually the effective exhaust velocity. So the ex- effective exhaust velocity of a rocket engine is actually very similar to the actual exhaust uh, velocity not quite but it's pretty similar but on a aircraft the effective exhaust velocity is very very different because you've got the air coming into the uh, into the engine itself so you have to add that in so it's pretty different uh, but so if you think about an impulse so say if i came up to you jamie and i pushed you i've given you a little bit of an impulse so I've changed your momentum. Not very nice, but yeah, carry on. No, it's not very nice, but but I've done it. I've impulsed. I've given you a little bit of change of momentum. Yeah. Now, in physics, whenever you say specific, it's it's you're always you're always saying how does that relate to in terms of per, per unit of mass. Mm. So it's anything where it it means the value per unit of mass. So specific impulse is 
if it's it's how much momentum I could give you using my whole mass, for example. Yes. And it's a measure of the efficiency of an engine. Now, here's 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 the bit that's that's quite cool. Is as your efficiency goes up in terms of how much you know how much thrust you can get from the same amount of mass mm. of propellant. Often, really, that means you're not. The more efficient it gets, often the thrust goes down. So it's a little. Again, it's a little bit like that miles per gallon thing. When it, when it, when a car engine is able to have like really enormous horsepower, mm. you don't also expect it to have really good fuel efficiency. Very either. true. It's not so. Yeah, you're not expecting your. Yeah, particularly your big American muscle cars. You know, they've got huge horsepower, but terrible uh, miles per gallon. Mm. It's a bit, that is a bit like rocket engines. So the thrust on a solid rocket booster, for example, is greater than that. Like, it's, it, you know, it's instant thrust mm. that you get is greater than that of a more efficient high impulse, high specific impulse uh, liquid oxygen and liquid hydrogen engine, for example. Which is why you get uh, solid rocket propellants used for that initial part of the takeoff, because you need loads of thrust That's it. That's to get it. a to get a rocket to get a rocket off the ground. So uh, so yeah, it's just, but it, but it is a measure of how much kind of distance or how much payload you can get into space and how efficient that engine is. So obviously, specific impulse is really really important. So a lot of it is whether you're measuring it in seconds which is to do so you're in so if, if i'm giving you an impulse that's how much thrust i'm how much i'm pushing you and for how long so your impulse is really thrust times time so specific impulse is thrust times time divided by the mass right terrible image in my head can you stop talking about being on me thrusting i've just eaten lunch matt come on <laughs> So, so if it if it's divided by mass, then it becomes meters per second. If it's divided by weight, then uh, you, you get all the all the terms cancel out, and you get seconds. So, really, I've not seen a great uh, explanation about why sometimes it's in seconds and sometimes it's measured as a speed. Uh, but it depends whether you're using mass or weight and it also depends on whether you're thinking of the specific impulse as a uh, as an indication of exhaust velocity uh, as well so it's 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 a little bit complicated in that in that on that front yeah well is it i just want to know is everyone keeping up <laughs> please tweet us if you've got any more questions if you look at the specific impulse of certain rocket engines it's not quite inversely proportional to their thrust but it's pretty much it's pretty much is there it, there's a kind of correlation but it's certainly not a straight line and it's not it's not completely mm. simple that correlation in the same way that miles per gallon isn't completely uh, uh, a complete correlation between the horsepower of an engine so uh, but yes. one of the sort of hard things is when you've got a rocket on the launch pad Liquid oxygen, for, uh, liquid hydrogen, for example, is a much. Normally, liquid hydrogen engines have a much better specific impulse than kerosene engines. Um, but kerosene engines, the kerosene fuel is much more dense. So even though they're less efficient, the kind of steel, the, the kind of massive tanks that you have to have to hold these things, and the drag that therefore mm. that they would have is smaller so there's a there's a kind of sweet spot between the volume of 
of the fuel that you're using compared to to how efficient it is. So normally ah. the first stage of rockets tends to be kerosene or solid rocket boosters. Even though they've got a, a low specific impulse, they're able to give you that initial massive amount of thrust because the specific impulse of, a, say, an F1 engine on a Saturn V was actually pretty low, uh, but it gave you a huge amount of thrust, like a huge amount of thrust to get you off the ground in the first place. And then, of course, you can stage it and drop that thrust, uh, drop that whole stage away and then start kicking in to your much more efficient specific impulse engines uh, higher up when you're sort of starting to get away from the surface of the Earth. You've built up a bit of speed. You don't need the thrust anymore, and you can get rid of some of the, you know you can get rid of this like heavy thrust stuff yeah you just need the efficiency yeah then. and then when you get into space you can start using really really low thrust rockets like the ion drives uh, mm. so uh, which have huge specific impulses uh, but incredibly low uh, thrust so you can't use the you can't use like an ion drive to launch a rocket because it just it's just pathetic mm. in its thrust but you can <laughs> but you can pathetic. use it to fly around the uh solar system really efficiently yes so there we go that's, that's awesome so that's one of the never really thought about it yeah before, so that's thanks that's you. one of the reasons why you have staging in rockets and etc etc and what we were talking about last week of a specific impulse of the tri-propellant fuel this whole idea of maybe you could have a rocket engine that it, at the first part of its journey was using kerosene and then switched to uh, uh, liquid hydrogen a little bit later on. Mm. Boom. Boom. There we go. We've all learned something. I did. I actually really enjoyed looking that up. So We'll wait for the corrections. Yeah, so it, absolutely. I can't wait for the uh, correct cor- correction. <laughs> <laughs> we should really mention the great Isaac Newton and his third law. So one of my favourite things to, to kind of think about rockets is – Imagine you're standing on a skateboard, Jamie, mm. and you're holding a bowling ball. Yeah. If you can throw that bowling ball really fast away from yourself, you actually start moving really fast on your skateboard in the opposite direction. That's how a rocket engine works. You know, most people consider it as like the flame pushing against the atmosphere, and it's not that at all. It's because it's chucking propellant as fast as it can out the back of the rocket. So it's all about mm. how you can get the propellant in the tanks and chuck it out the back as quickly as possible, like you throwing a bowling ball from your skateboard and chucking it out the back as quickly as possible. So you've got to get it really, really hot as well. So the hotter it gets, the faster it flies out the back of the nozzle and the more uh, you know, more thrust and more speed you can get out of that. Um... Matt, should we do that experiment with me on a skateboard and a bowling ball on our 100th episode? Oh, my God, that's a great idea. So if you... <laughs> should we do it? Yeah, absolutely. So 100th episode, 28th of September. Don't forget, get it in your, diary, in your diary if you're in London. I'll get, my, I'll get my knee pads and elbow pads ready. Yeah, and if you're in London, come down to the British Interplanetary Society and take part, and we will have Jamie on a skateboard with a bowling ball and we'll demonstrate the rocket equation that way. Brilliant. Newton's third law. Already beginning to regret this. It's brilliant. I love it. <laughs> hey. Hey, Matt. Yes. Space ain't so high anymore. This is great. So Is it? Yeah, so our former guest, you know, Jonathan McDowell, who we had on yeah. talking about the Chandra Space Telescope, which seems mm-hmm. like a long time ago. We need to get that guy on again. He's, he's so yeah. cool. Member of the British Interplanetary Society. Lives in America. I think he is American, but he is, of course, British. He's a great guy. Mm. Um, 
he's actually been discussing how the Kármán line, which is at 100 kilometres and is considered by many the boundary of space, he's saying, really, no, it's not, that we shouldn't be considering that to be the boundary of space. And he's been using his, you know how he, he's got this, um, he's, he keeps a track of everything, all satellites and bits and debris and everything. He's like a, yeah, basically the best space nerd ever. He's been looking at all his data and uh, realises that really that Kármán line should be more like 80 kilometres oh. because there's no significant drag from the atmosphere above that. And that if something can stay in orbit even when it's dipped down into that area, then surely that sh- still should be considered space. He's about to publish his report in Acta Astronautica, which I think is really exciting. That's really exciting. So who would have to peer review that and agree? Uh, lots of space scientists in the same way that all the Jabez articles are peer reviewed by you know, people from NASA, people from ESA, people at different rocket companies, and they all look over the work and different universities. So, yeah. Probably I, probably us as well, Matt. Yeah, they'll probably send a paper to us to peer review and then bin our response. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Delete our emails. So, yeah, even uh, George oh, Whiteside of, uh, of Virgin Galactic said, uh, Jonathan McDowell lays out a solid case that... A reasonable position for where space begins is around 80 kilometres. Now, the Air Force has awarded uh, its X-15 pilots who fly above 80 kilometres their space wings. So this is something, a recognition we have always respected. So, yeah, so now... Well, that's one tick, If you think about it, yeah, Virgin uh, Virgin Galactic and uh, Blue Origin no longer have to go so high to claim that they've got people into space. If... uh, Boom. If Jonathan McDowell's um, new Carmen line is accepted, well, Matt, I'm accepting it. Yes, I'm on Jonathan's side. All right. Oh, totally. I am there totally as well. Um, so there's been lots of news about the space station this it's been week, going on. Uh, which is actually really cool because the next part of the uh, David Baker interview I'm about to play is about uh, the space station. And exactly this. So David literally um, preempted this entire thing. But yeah, the space agency inspector general concludes that NASA has a stinky choice when it comes to the future of the International Space Station. And it, a and stinky it, choice. Yeah, it's a stinky choice. Okay. It's not. It's not great. And and we, we can probably listen. I mean, David Baker's inter- uh, David Baker kind of lays it out quite frighteningly <laughs> in the next chat that I'm about to have with him. Uh, and he also talks about the 60th anniversary of NASA and where NASA are going, of course, which uh, was July the 29th was the 60th birthday of NASA. So happy ah, birthday, yes, it was. NASA. Well, I've been looking forward to the second part. Uh, love David Baker. Do you want David to tell us all about the space station? Let's roll the tape, Matt. Écoutez. The interplanetary... Podcast, putting the ace back into space. 60 years of NASA. Yeah. Where do you see NASA going and and, mm. and, and, and where has it come from? Well, I think, um, obviously, there's a huge legacy to and big boots to fill. Um, my concern is that we should not continually look back. And, and I say that in a very hard and pragmatic, disciplined way because I suppose at the core of a lot of what I do is space history. Um, there aren't a lot of us around, space historians, and sadly, I 
feel that there's not enough attention in universities for teaching the history of technology. It's a whole other subject. One of these months, Matt, I'd love to talk, and we won't do it now, but it impinges upon NASA where it's been and where it's going, is the way project management and the administration of high-tech programs has changed and evolved over the decades. And there's a huge amount that I feel is still not being injected into the next generation of engineers and scientists who will very quickly become the managers of programs in the decades to come. And lessons learned there, uh, NASA has a lessons learned program. Uh, but it looks specifically at projects. It looks at um, the lunar module, the Apollo Command and Service modules, the shuttle. <clears throat> but the, oh, I'm, I'm really keen as a historian um, to apply into the, edu into the higher education sector, even into areas where there is no um, direct relevance to the space program. Because I know we picked up many things, and I came aboard this this in, in the 1960s, where we picked up a huge amount from the defense establishment that enabled NASA. They were enablers. So when you ask about the past, NASA's great secret was that it was able to pick the best from everywhere. Um, and I think that, that that's not wholly understood by people. And I saw it very dramatically when we were failing miserably to be able to meet the objectives incrementally walking us toward fulfilling Kennedy's goal because NASA was completely adrift from the timeline and the schedules that were needed. And in 1963 and 1964, several hundred senior U.S. Air Force officers were inducted rapidly, put into plain clothes and put into administrative positions, running organizations within NASA that, that created a massive change. So NASA, all the way through, initially collected up all of the space activities when it formed. It, it had nothing of its own. It was the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics and had been conducting experimental wind tunnel and theoretical analysis for the Air Force's Man in Space Soonest program which was a ballistic capsule, cone-shaped, that would fly up on top of a redstone, put men into, into high altitude on a ballistic trajectory for five minutes of weightlessness to test human physiological response to weightlessness prior to flying the dinosaur boost glide strike vehicle, which was cancelled. This, Man in Space Soonest, was imported from the Air Force to NASA and hurriedly renamed Mercury. And that was the two trajectories that the first two Mercury flights flew, with Shepard and Grissom on ballistic flights. NASA took that and turned it into an orbital vehicle. But that's an example of how nothing that NASA did was developed at NASA. It was developed either in industry and imported to NASA, or was a U.S. government agency, like what became the Marshall Space Flight Center, with the German von Braun team, the Germans are running everything. <laughs> Ron Brown was director of the Marshall Space Flight Center. Kurt Debus became head of the Kennedy Space Center. And further down various layers and tiers of management, you had Germans there too. And suddenly the shuttle era comes in the 70s, formally approved by Nixon in 1972. 
who scared himself witless over space. He was desperately worried over space, and I think I've mentioned it before. He had the last Apollo mission deferred until after the election so that he wouldn't be compromised by a terrible Apollo failure. He was convinced it would go bang on the launch pad or bang on the moon. And, and had it deferred from November, the election, to reinsert him as president, to the December. He was terrified of space and cancelled everything and wanted to abolish NASA. And that's enshrined in some very erudite historical papers written by John Roxton, who is probably the arch-historian of American space during the NASA years and is out of the George Washington University in America. So, so looking back, and I think we can do too much looking back, NASA has acquired all the best from every place. And those of us who came to NASA from Canada, from Europe, from the, from the UK, it was just open door because that was what it was. And so, so the workforce at NASA had nationality origins spread all over the planet. And so I, I guess that is, that's really what's happening at, at companies like SpaceX then now, is it? That, that they're, the yes. ones, they're the ones attracting the, the talent and the, yes. and, the, and, and, the, and the skill sets, presumably, are these not just technical but managerial. That's right. Yes, it is. But the thing about NASA is, as we look forward now, and, and I think that one of the problems at NASA is that it's living in the past an awful lot. It's living on the past. It's saturated with the Apollo achievements, and we're coming up to a tremendous peak with this 50th anniversary, which, which is a glorious time of celebration mm. of an extraordinary series of events that, that many thought just a few years before these events, 50 years ago, would not happen in their lifetime but did. And now we're picking up on that, and, and that's good, but we must not lose sight of what NASA is going forward to become. And I, I fear that NASA is beginning to, to do to the shuttle program what it did very effectively to the Apollo program to actually provide one of the entrenched marks of respect for the agency. And it has high respect throughout the United States. It, it's top of the government agencies to work for in terms of workplace satisfaction uh, because governments have all these these surveys and, and ask anonymous voting from employees to, you know, independent agencies go and look around. So as independent as you can ever get when the government looks at itself, I guess when it's just looking to its own internal stuff, when there's a lead and then two, three, four in terms of best places to work for, um, NASA achieves top notch when it comes to either worker satisfaction, diversification within employment, and also for aspiration from those not working with NASA. Uh, so it's a good field factor. And I, again, throwing back, but not to, to return to it in detail, to what we were speaking earlier about what the government is doing to fast-track these launcher capabilities. That's our little NASA emerging to a go-to aspiration for young people, and not so young people, choosing a, their first career or a new career. And, and, of course, we live in this wonderful age when you have to keep reinventing yourself, you have to keep adapting, and that. You know, I think that's that's chargeable against these excess costs on the health service because it keeps us all younger and wanting to do more and more, and so it keeps us going <laughs> longer and longer. <laughs> but, but getting back to, to NASA and the future, and 
The thing that I've been very concerned about, and, and the September edition of Spaceflight, which on the vagaries of publishing comes out in the first week of August, um, I've got a very major section. There's more than 20 pages of NASA at 60. And I'm afraid, guys, none of it looks back at the past. It's all about from now to the future. And I keep on talking about this elephant in the room, and I think the big problem is that we're just not realizing that in terms of the people who will go to the space station for scientific research now, as well as those who might go to a privatized space station or will have to go to the government space station, the National Laboratory, as the International Space Station is known in the United States, it's only one, it is the National Laboratory, the one in space, mm. this 400 metric ton wonderful facility up there. But just to remind again, it's due to expire <clears throat> unless it's given an extended lease of life uh, by 2024. And for those of you who want all the top and toe detail and the figures and the numbers and the mathematics of e econometrics, as they call it, on why I say the things I do and why I'm talking to you like this now, um, it is in the issue of Spaceflight Out beginning of August. It's the September issue, and I've got 10 pages there where I go into the costings, the price, and I think um, the real, real problem is that we are not balancing use and demand. And it is the purest ethic of capitalism that you need to balance the user side to be slightly in excess of the demand side so that it encourages an expanded workforce on the demand side to lower the unit costs to the user. And like it or not, for the last 250 years, and ever since some of the most erudite founding fathers of the United States wrote, when they wrote the basic tenets of capitalism at the end of the 18th century, in those great revolutions that threw up so much Adams and people like that, who wrote the fundamental structures of economics, they defined what it required. And this use-demand balance has been crucial to every successful venture that human beings have engaged in that has had a what we call today a capitalist ethos to it. And the problem is that we have got an oversurfeit on the supply side for station and an absolute deficit on the demand side. Now, a few numbers are necessary, just to put it into context. It costs NASA, and this is not paying back the development cost. Space Station costs NASA each year, not as accountants would, looking back to amortize all the development costs. Three billion, just over three, it's about $3.2 billion a year to run. It costs the American taxpayer that. Out of a total budget in the United States, for NASA of 20 billion. And it is a significant fraction when you consider that half of that is on the supply side and the other half is on the operations costs. Almost nothing is going from NASA or the US government into fostering a heavy demand side fiscal chain which would cause users to want to go to fly their experiments in space. Now, there's a, there's, there's a very obscure, although to many others it's very well known and very well, well consulted, office uh, 
going by the highly unattractive title, the Office of Science and Technology Policy. And it looks at all these weird and wacky numbers and figures and statistics. And NASA asked it to look at the figures for potential privatized space stations. So it wanted to know what to do, having encouraged the commercial development of SpaceX and what is now Northrop Grumman, used to be Orbital, Orbital Sciences and Orbital ATK, and now, of course, it's been taken over by Northrop Grumman. Looking at all of those costs, and it has found that there is about one-twentieth of the amount of money being paid by the U.S. government into sponsoring and sustaining a space science research and engineering technology development program actually on orbit. So the market is not getting used to seeing a flow of funding into the demand side the demand for tasking and for work, for revenue-earning products and projects that could bring a feedback for the taxpayer, as the supply side is by lowering costs for NASA on logistically supplying the station. And it costs NASA, and although it's, it, you know, it, this, this is not SpaceX paying for this, this is the American government paying for this, but at less cost than it would be if it had to do it itself, more than $1.6 billion a year just for the supply side. And we've got supply side contractors coming out the woodwork. Mm -hmm. They're all lining up. We've got SpaceX. We've got Jeff Bezos. We've got, uh, ultimately, we've got Northrop Grumman with the Cygnus launch module. We're fantastic. As we were at Apollo, of pushing out amazing hardware, building up capability, and then falling flat on our face when it comes to demand. The Apollo program was exactly the same. Mm. We built massive amount of hardware that was technically far ahead of expectations and, and its time, extant at the time, of what the 60s was throwing up elsewhere in technology. But there was, no, there was nothing shown for a return from that and so it was considered to be a drain hole by governments successively in America and by Congress who had to report to its electorate. And keeping its electorate happy is very important in America, much more so than in the UK, where you've got just two senators for every state. So they are polarized, targeted hit ships, these senators, if money does not come to their state. And the problem with that was that there was no return from Apollo. And while, while people say, why aren't we on Mars now? Why, aren't, why didn't we continue with the moon? It's very simple. It's because there was no financial advantage and the supply side was simply a drain down which more and more supply was being fed. And this is the problem we face with Space Station. And so when we look at what Space Station is likely to cost for um, privatized operations, in terms of mod, even the even the very privatised elements are on the supply side. Mm. Bigelow, that's a supply side. It's a hangar for what? <laughs> oh, yeah, oh, it's going to be this. It's going to be that. And and this, I, I I keep on seeing this. Build it, and they will come. Ethic. Well, that quote comes very honestly from supply siders who are supplying for a demand that's already heavily entrenched. Rail networks, massive infrastructure already of users. Millions of people need to travel on the rail and are going to do it anyway. Roads, build new roads. They'll come and use them because the transport infrastructure is there anyway. And, and so this build it and they will come 
is actually about things already established. There is no established commercial market for goods manufactured in space. And it has been demonstrated that with far-out schemes like mining the asteroids, bringing rare earths and exotic materials, that contravenes the very ethics of capitalism, as has been shown by a number of, of highly influential and very erudite econometric organizations that are not concerned with space or metal bending, anything, but with simply economics. And they say, you bring all that down and the cost will go to the floor and then you'll be left with a very expensive supply side uh, feeding all these spaceships to asteroids that you can't pay for because the, because the price of the goods will plummet as you, as you re- remove the scarcity component and bring it back down to just an everyday material again. So the costs go through the floor. So the going through the floor costs that is the virtuous side of massively expanding the supply end so that you reduce the unit costs of flying will also negatively apply to the demand side where all of a sudden you bring these things down from space, the price drops out the market. So I don't think there's a reality here. And, and looking at trying to, as NASA is doing, say, okay, what can we do? We've done very well at supporting and subsidizing the development of commercial space. And this has been down to, to essentially the U.S. government. Now NASA is getting very concerned that just when all this market is so, is so inseparably entwined with government programs, SpaceX has now announced there's going to be a 30% boost in the price it charges NASA for lifting cargo to the space station. <laughs> now this is because and, and this incidentally on top of and these figures I'm just plucking out of the article that I've got which explains this in very great detail um, NASA has already spent $9.3 billion on cargo and logistical supply to the ISS and $8.5 billion for development of Dragon 2 and Starliner crew carrying vehicles and that's 17.8 billion, and there's a further 2.2 billion it will have to pay for by 2024. And that's going to pay, there are still 39 supply missions uh, contracted <clears throat> out of the commercial suppliers, uh, and an additional 10 more will have to be contracted, 10 more flights in addition to the 39, to run through 2024. And by that date, there's going to be four commercial crew demonstration flights completed with 12 crew missions planned by the time the space station runs out of, out of uh, government approval at 2024. And it has to be said that SpaceX already by 2024 will have received from the American taxpayer $7.7 billion for the development of both Falcon 9, Falcon Heavy, and all of its space deliverable supply-side hardware. Now, when you then look at the costs of promoting commercial use on the demand side for science and manufacturing in space, it's an absolute pittance. And that's why people are not going in the quantities needed to justify both a commercial ownership of the International Space Station beyond 2024. We're really running out of time to demonstrate that's anywhere near viable. We should not be proud that we're celebrating in November the 20th anniversary of the space station construction starting, 18 years of permanent habitation, and it is only about 5% returning on the investment 
that's been made on the supply side. Supply side being everything in terms of building the station, keeping it provisioned. We're fantastic at that, but there's nothing that's demonstrating it. it's a go-to place for the demand side. And, and that is why the, the Office of Science and Technology policy in, in looking at this have said that they do expect the supply-side cost to come down. Um, the reason that SpaceX is raising its prices by 30%, and NASA has no uh, alternative but to pay this, SpaceX is saying, and it's certainly true, that the old problem with NASA is that it fiddles and meddles all the way through until it finally gets to somebody lighting the blue-touch paper on the launch pad. Matt, this was the problem. This was the tragic, terrible reason why we had the Apollo fire. Because so many bits were being added, so many bits were being changed, black boxes were being put in that Block 1 Apollo spacecraft, Grissom, White, and Chaffee were due to fly a month after their horrific, tragic death on January 27, 1967. It was because black boxes had been put in there with wires going to switches on, on, on the consoles and to the power supply at the other. And then all of a sudden they say, oh, we don't need that black box anymore. Take it out. The wires were left there, dead-ended. There were, it, that was the meddling and the fiddling that led to a spacecraft which was a botched job and took the lives of three astronauts. NASA has done the same with Space Station. They've continually changed the specification for the um, Dragon capsule. They've had SpaceX increase the capabilities. They, they required a much shorter lead time for loading cargo in and offloading cargo from Dragon once it returns to keep the experiments fresher from their zero-gravity um, return, and uh, also for increasing the volume internally by 30%. And SpaceX has said, sorry, guys, you've got to pay for this. And so it works out there's a 30% cost increase. So what NASA needs to do is to forget the supply side, hunker down, do what the Russians did, keep frying the same stuff. Mm. And that eliminates the amount of investment you have to make in keeping this machine fed which has no demand-side return. So this is something I've majored on very much because I don't think it's getting any discussion anywhere. No, I mean, it almost seems painfully obvious, doesn't it, that you've got this ex extremely <laughs> expensive laboratory and you think, yeah. well, look at the size of it. It can't possibly churn out billions of pounds worth of of, of revenue. It, it it does seem extraordinary that, I mean, just, just the way that you've just put it there, it, it, mm. it, it actually... It's it's frightening, isn't it? I mean, so I mean, yeah. where where do you where do you put the chances of the space station survival? Then, I mean, if 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 it does go completely commercial and there is absolutely no way that you can balance that equation, like you say, if if it's gone commercial, then it has to fall within uh, mm. a, a capital style mm. thing. How, yeah. what, where do you put its yeah. rate of survival? Surely it's almost at yeah. zero. It's flatlining. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I certainly think it is. Um, I think just to say that, in fact, um, there is obviously a series of plans that are in place and have been worked up by NASA. NASA knows how it will get rid of the space station. And guess what? It's going to use the Falcon 9 to provide the propulsion for a controlled descent into a very pre-planned and very remote part of the Pacific Ocean. 
Um, this is the plan currently to bring it down because increasingly, <clears throat> because in the, NASA is essentially has um, has has uh, taken the legs off its own stand about keeping the space station by putting up this lunar orbital platform gateway. And the Russians are getting very excited about diverting the the modules. There's a pre-cal, well, there are two. There's the Nauka module going up to the ISS from Russia in 2019. And there's the hub pre-cal, which is going up in 2020. The SPW science power module was to have been going up in 2025, but now the Russians are talking and discussing with the international partners using that module as their plug-in at the lunar orbital platform. So they are already thinking of translating across from ISS at LEO to lunar orbit platform in lunar orbit and sustaining the technology evolution. That makes a lot of sense. But there is a huge amount which is being developed by NASA, again, on the supply side. <clears throat> the environmental control system, which is on the um, ISS, is totally incapable of translating across to being used for the lunar orbital platform. And it is being used, essentially, the space station will be used in the next few years for advanced environmental control system development, which can take currently 50% reclamation rates for the environmental system up to 75% to 100%, which will be very necessary for the lunar orbital platform, as the realities of the supply side kick in for supporting a space station that is around the moon rather than just up an altitude from the surface of the Earth no greater than the distance between London and Paris. <laughs> so, so that is already becoming very evident and, and very that, that we need space station to continue those. But whether it survives or not is going to be built upon more profound and bigger issues than whether tech development for the lunar orbital platform gets to go ahead. I should mention, I think is important as well, with regard to the amount of money which is returned um, out of this commercial operation. I said the billions that have gone into supporting the commercial side. There is a return, Matt, on this, and, it, and, and it's interesting as well. And if you look into the economics of it all, um, the price of an Atlas V to NASA was $160 million. Mm-hmm. That fell by 20% when Falcon 9 became eligible for launch services. And by subsidizing the development of Falcon 9, four Falcon 9s cost an average of $95 million apiece versus the $160 million apiece they would have cost NASA had they not invested in helping SpaceX get to where it is now. Yeah, I, it... it... That could, yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> I understand. I mean, there's there's also an element in this where governments are supposed to be investing in things that aren't necessarily give you a capital return. And and I, oh, yeah. I, I, I mean, I think of things like with the asteroid mining thing, for example, I'm kind of with Jeff Bezos in terms of this having an idea of a flipping industry into space. So 
we're actually right. protecting the planet. And I, and I don't really know how feasible that is because I've I haven't yeah. again I don't have huge amounts of numbers or the eight yeah. hours a day for yeah. several years to kind of crunch these numbers and, and even yes. get my head around it. But yeah. Um, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be well, a uh, you know a capitalist kind of a, a movement towards that. It should no. be more of a kind of um, no. that, that's what surely that's what no. government but, should be doing, but not what NASA but, should be doing. Well, we need to return to the economy money that pays for essential services. And now here's the cracker. Bef- but before I mention the cracker, um, I should say that picking up on what you've just said. Uh, China has just come op- has just opened up a little bit more on the Long March 9, which is this uh, space launch system equivalent that China is building and, ho- and will, is, is pegging for launch from 2030. The first launch of Long March 9 is now going to lift a space power system into orbit. You may remember, and I certainly, I certainly worked on a couple of these things myself, the space power system concept of the 1970s, when we were looking at putting solar collecting farms in orbit above the Earth to beam down electricity converted from sunlight on these kilometer-square solar arrays, beaming down on microwave links to rectenna on the ground to relieve the Earth entirely of any indigenously terrestrial-produced electrical supply supply system. China is now talking about using Long March 9 to build test networks of constructing space power systems, space power platforms in space. It's a concept many many listeners may not be aware of, but essentially it's where you have about a 25 by 25 kilometer square assembly, simply a platform of solar arrays facing the sun constantly and beaming down to a rectenna on the ground, the receiver, um, microwave links. The rectenna will be raised above the ground uh, so that you could use ordinary agricultural um, exploitation underneath. You'd have grazing cows and cattle, and you would not... Theoretically, the idea was in the 70s, and a huge amount of development investment, particularly from Boeing, went into looking at this. The launch requirements are phenomenal to build and to service systems such as that, but it could completely and utterly relieve the um, the Earth of having to having to to generate its own electrical power. We could suck it all down from space. And China has announced that that's what the first payload on the Long March Nine in 2030 is going to be. Well, that's pretty exciting. However, back to the really, really big reason. The question you asked about the and this is a really, really big issue. Now, I have said, and I have demonstrated in previous, because I, I I very early on in my life realized it was the bean counters and the legislators that was going to make the space program. It wasn't engineers and scientists. We could dream all we wanted, come up with all these ideas. We could, we, we could have been on Mars 30 years ago if it had been for that. But it's the bean counters and the legislators constantly having to demonstrate a return to pay for services that are actually vital rather than desirable. Mm-hmm. And there's no greater need than a collective expenditure for health, education, welfare, and social security. I think we all sign up to that, mm-hmm. that increasingly even the most hardened 
capitalist orientated economies are realizing this is a have to go to reality. Now, I've said in the past that the space industry in America returns in taxation alone more than the cost of NASA's budget. And I think we've mentioned that on this mm. podcast series before. Now, an independent series of analytical economists who are pretty hard-boiled and have certainly no flag to wave or axe to grind when it comes to NASA or space or weapons or the military or wherever money comes from, whichever industry, they generally agree that the, um, that the NASA budget at 20 billion returns tenfold to the economy right the way across the platform. And this is this is an analysis done by hundreds of people over many years looking into every single nut, bolt, contract, deal that struck in foreign trade and development. And they reckon this one to ten. It sounds right to me because back in the 70s, I was very involved in doing this kind of thing with Rockwell International who wanted to justify the shuttle. And we came up with a five to one return from the space program. to the. I mean, that helped. Plus the convinced Nixon that he had to continue to support a human spaceflight program. Right. Now, government statistics and figures which are available to anybody, anywhere, show that, that the United States each year spends $185,000 million, $185 billion, on health, education, welfare, housing, and social security. That's quite a lot. If you multiply 20 billion by 10, that's 200 billion. It can be demonstrated on numbers alone that NASA's budget pays for the entire expenditure of the United States government on health, education, welfare, housing, and social security. I mean, that is, I mean, that's just the most stunning statistic ever. <laughs> well, in my NASA at 60, the last two pages of this 22, 24 page section in the magazine, which is wholly devoted to really looking, okay, folks, what is that? The last two pages are purely, okay, who pays for it? And what does it cost? And that, on a budget, which as a percentage of total government expenditure, is one-tenth what it was at the peak of Apollo. The peak of Apollo, we were spending 5.5% of the American budget just for one year. It's peaked and then collapsed at 5.5%. Now, and for the last several decades, it's been 0.5%. So it's fairly easy arithmetic. It's one-tenth as a percentage. Today, of a much wealthier nation compared to that in the 60s. So with that, it's paying. And, and I know people get turned off by numbers and math and financing, and budgets, and, and, and there's lies, damn lies, and statistics, I know. Mm -hmm. But paired right down to the basic bottom line, what does NASA cost? What do these programs cost according to the US government? And those are the figures. Really, the only way you generate wealth is, yeah. is through technology and science. It, it's literally, you can't generate wealth through banking. No. You can't generate no. wealth through healthcare. You, no. ha you have to generate it through no. technology and science. And if you have something like NASA, which is just about technology and science, then yeah. I guess it kind yeah. of makes sense, doesn't it, really? Yes. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's a growth, growth area. 
in a world of fluctuating financial services markets and not to get not to get bogged down in all this, this yeah. mathematical stuff but we all know that financial services have not yet got us back to where we were before the collapse what was it almost 10 years ago now yeah. <laughs> um and and um still people's when you look at interest rates people who have invested for their pensions okay it's great for for buying things because interest rates are so very very low um and i don't want to go down the road of mm. consumerism and that's why you know debt is so much easier to accumulate because because interest is so low and you can get credit anywhere and every place because it's a fraction of what it was but the point is that financial services that wants this country under a former prime minister put its it destroyed its industrial base for a reliance on financial services those financial services are so erratic and are so prone to massive convulsions over the decades as they always have been that they're, they're a very unreliable go-to place for the money governments need to pay very essential social welfare services so if I'm going to wrap up this whole show, I would say that the conclusion would be that the this whole nascent British spaceport idea, our own NASA, in the light of Brexit, is going to be just about the best news that we could possibly have. And, <laughs> and I'm pumping a whole heap of um, money into education as well to actually service yeah. these new industries. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's very good news for this country. We need to, to steady our hand on the rudder. We need to maintain investment in these sectors and whether Brexit collapses or we stay in Europe or whatever, it's gone past the point now where we can turn the clock back because companies in America and around the world are looking to us now to achieve this. So it's almost now, and and I don't wish to, to lose good friends, but it's almost, thank God, out of the hands of the politicians. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's fair. <laughs> yeah, well, because it needs it needs industry, it needs financial investment, but it needs our brains to flower and to be nurtured in this new environment in which we can do so much good and make so much value for the nation, as well as a fulfilling and challenging, self-fulfilling career for the next generation and our own generation. Yeah, well, I think I think I think we're living in extremely exciting times, and I'm I'm really glad you didn't burst my bubble and went with an earlier date for launch than <laughs> I could have possibly have imagined you saying. Uh, we're definitely going to have to wrap this one up. We, we've now broken our record for uh, longest longest chat. <laughs> so, <laughs> so thanks very much, David, and um, I look forward to speaking to you next month. And yeah, I mean, I'm really looking forward to this month's space flight. Thank you, Matt. Good talking to you as always. Bye, David. Bye. The Interplanetary Podcast is alive! So there we go. Well, it's just genius again, isn't it? I do love our monthly chat with David Baker. It's, but it's I brilliant. Am, I'm going to definitely have to try and get him down to half-hour chats. Good luck with that. <laughs> Once I press the go, it's like, Wow. This is, it's like you, know, you say, it's hard to cut anything out. But we're trying, people. Uh, so, yeah, I hope you enjoyed that, everyone. Um, uh, a couple of launches coming up, Jamie. What we got? We got another Falcon 9. I mean, Elon Musk is absolutely smashing them now. It's just one after another. And we'll start, I guess, we're soon going to see how quickly he can turn around a Block 5 Falcon 9. Because that's what he's flying now. And it'd be really interesting to see how quickly he can turn that around. Cape Canaveral. Let's do it. And then in exactly a week, probably the time our next episode will be coming out, uh, we shall be 
seeing a Delta IV Heavy, one of the most exciting spacecraft there is, uh, launching one of the most exciting spacecraft ever, the Parker Solar Probe. The PSP? <laughs> the PSP. <laughs> oh, uh, uh, the, one of my faves. Well, no, absolutely. It's going to fly so close to the sun. It's literally going to be touching the sun it, into the corona and finally trying to answer why the corona is so much hotter than the surface of the sun. Oh, my goodness. And so it's it, the technology of that thing is incredible. The, the way that it manages to do this without melting and, and completely going haywire is just incredible. Well, I hope they're not wearing feathered wings, Matt. That's no, all I'm saying. No, exactly. And I think we should cover the Parker Solar Probe next week once it's flown. What do you reckon? So do I. Let's have a PSP special. So, Jamie. Yeah? I've got a space fact for you. Hit me. Answer yes or no. Have siblings ever been in space at the same time? Oof. Well, no. When you say siblings in space, I just think of um, astronaut Kelly. But I know that his brother wasn't in space at the same time. So I'm going to say no. Nice. No is correct. Yes. But it was only due to delays on STS-134 that Mark Kelly didn't end up on the International Space Station with Scott Kelly. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yes, they were planned to be on the space station at the same time, but it uh, flew a little bit later. Well, I never. And weirdly, STS-134, the commander of that was Andrew Feustel, who is currently the commander of the ISS. Matt, do you think it will ever happen? I'm talking astronauts, not members of the public. Both got to happen someday isn't it you'd think so wouldn't you because you would think if you're twins if you're one of a twin and you're good enough to go to space that the other twin probably is as well yeah. if you're particularly if you're identical twins and good for research isn't it yeah i mean mark and scott are twins they're not just brothers yeah. they are twins so yeah i mean that's just it's pretty crazy but yeah that's so no never happened and they're back to being the same height aren't they are they yes i would have thought so by now scott's scott's no longer two inches taller Scott's health has definitely taken a bashing. Mm. The news from the health side of things I don't think is is that great if you think about long-term space exploration. Mm. Yeah. But it's it's something that needs to be done and and obviously great thing about science is now we know, now we know it's not great we can do something about exactly. it. Exactly, that's what these brave people do. Second silly fact to end on. Go on then. It's all about the lunar eclipse that we've just had. Okay. The Hindu interpret lunar eclipses as the result of the demon Rahu drinking the elixir of immortality. And then the twin deities, the sun and the moon, promptly decapitating Rahu. But having consumed the elixir, Rahu's head remains immortal. And then seeking revenge, Rahu's head chases the sun and the moon and devours them. If he catches them, we have an eclipse. And Rahu swallows the moon which reappears out of his severed neck. Well, it all seems completely plausible. Good little tale, that, isn't it? Great little tale. I mean, Matt, who says it's a, who says it's a tale? There's the moon. It's coming, at, it's, it's coming out of Rahu's severed oh, neck. It's a beautiful child uh, children's story, that, isn't it? So, on that, shall we leave our Let's leave listeners... everyone alone and say uh, goodbye. You've been listening to the Interplanetary Podcast. Putting, Putting the, the ace... ace. Back. Back.
into, into space. space. Fly my beauties. Au revoir, podcasts. Goodbye. Same time next week. Bye bye.